I think the talent that's coming in is great talent. It is the week of April 26th, and welcome to episode 77 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we're doing a deep dive with NSI Advisory Board member Dr. Lenora Gant about diversity and national security. Dr. Gant has served in a variety of roles across the national security community, including as Assistant Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency as Senior Executive for Academic Outreach and Science, Technology, and Engineering in Mathematics, STEM, and Senior Advisor to the Research Directorate, and various leadership roles within the Department of Defense. Dr. Gant, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm happy to be here with you today. So increasing the diversity of the national security community has been on the agenda now for decades. What are some of the main hurdles to achieving a more diverse workforce? From my perspective, having worked across the Department of Defense and the intelligence community agencies, I think the hurdles are the same, but they vary across the different agencies, because each agency has its own culture. It's not just training and education. Let me give you an example. If you want to promote people, you develop them in the same way you you develop everybody else. What we find, women and people of color don't always get the critical assignments. They don't always get the choice training. They don't always work on different tag teams. So when you don't get the right assignments to develop those multi-generational skills and those multi-knowledge and abilities, you, you don't compete well. But if you never give them the opportunity, you'll never get there. So those are some of the hurdles. And sometimes it's the internal processes. What I mean by internal processes, you have policies And some of those policies have not been looked at in years for discriminatory applications. For instance, you may have a policy and you don't think about within that policy, you are dictating a behavior or a process that does not give equal access to all people in the workplace. Let me give you an example of that. Let's say you say a person, in order to go to Harvard, in order to get advanced skills in a trade, craft, or a specialty area, let's say you have a criteria in there that that person must be a division chief and supervise 50 people. If you don't give women and minorities those same opportunities, they'll never get in that pipeline to get those positions. So those are some of the hurdles is given equal access and development assignments to women and people of color so that they can be in that competitive pipeline. I hope that makes sense to you. Very much so. So one of uh, the National Security Institute's visiting fellows, Bishop Garrison, recently took a job in the Biden administration uh, where he's going to advise the Secretary of Defense on diversity in the Defense Department. What do you think he should be focusing on right away? Leadership. And the reason I say leadership, leadership accountability. If you don't hold your leadership accountable, 
with some credible measures and metrics, you're not going to get there because they're not, they're not going to hold their subordinates accountable. And then another thing he needed to focus on is how diverse is the leadership? Do people who come in see themselves at certain levels of the leadership so that they can see themselves in those positions down the line? People will leave, even though you spent money on recruiting them or bringing them in. And if they're not assimilated and welcomed into that environment, no matter what level you bring them in, they're not going to stay. So I think focusing on leadership, focusing on the diversity of that leadership, and even even if you need to hire political appointees to walk into those positions right away so that you know the president really means business, do that. But you need some you need the diverse leadership at the top. You need measures, you need metrics and you need accountability, because if subordinate leaders don't see that and they're not held accountable. And what I mean by accountable, real accountability. If you set, let's say, a metric to increase your diversity by 25 percent or align with the federal workforce or the civilian labor force. Those are national metrics that are out there already. If a leader does not meet those metrics, you can tell it. It's all on paper. And that leader's uh, bonus could be taken away or his advancement could be taken away or that person can be removed. You at this point in American society, we need real accountability. We need real metrics and we need people to take this seriously. And if you don't have the leadership, diverse leadership, the accountability with measures and metrics and milestones, you're never going to get there. We've been dealing with this much too long. Dr. Gant, in in my uh, years working on Capitol Hill on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, we worked on legislation to promote diversity hiring at the State Department. And we were always able to include some provisions, whether it was the the Wrangell internships or things like that, to help diversify the Foreign Service, which was which was very much badly in need of diversity. And now uh, as, as a result of that and, and some other steps, the, the Foreign Service at the State Department has become much more diverse, at least at the entry level. But we haven't seen that progress through to the higher levels in the Foreign Service. And one of, one of the things that uh, people have talked about is that in a system that's based on informal mentoring and relationships and kind of a, uh, a less formalistic approach to these issues, the diversity candidates, women, people of color tend to not make it all the way to the top. And that what we need to do is shift to more of an education and training based promotion system. Is that what you have seen in your work in these various departments and agencies? Let me say that some of that is true, but you cannot depend on training and education to remedy years of discrimination and racism. We need the face to fact. People that look like you, you have friends, you network, you have a social scene that you, you you deal with. People promote who they know. People promote who look like them. And until you give other people that access and those critical assignments so they can be in that mix, nothing will happen. But there are biases that still exist within the workforce 
because every one of us bring a little bit of baggage to the table. When, when people of color and women get to the 13 or 14 level, it's hard for them to move beyond that because there are only so many positions at that level. And if you haven't coached someone, mentored someone, sponsored someone to see that they can produce and you produce the people that look like you and you don't think about producing those people that don't look like you, that won't ever happen. But an, until you have some credible metrics in place, you can, you can see. But you can't legislate um, behavior. It's got to come from the heart. People mean well. And many times, I would say managers, predominantly white managers, don't even understand when they're being adverse to the other race or to the other gender because it's so natural to do things the traditional way. So I think training is a part of it, but I think I go back to accountability and I go back to setting your leadership to look like America or your leadership to look similar to the federal workforce statistics or the civilian workforce statistics. Those things you can count and people understand that and they understand consequences when it when it affects uh, their paycheck. So there have been a number of firsts in our space recently. Gina Haspel was the first uh, director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Averill Haynes is now the first female director of national intelligence. Lloyd Austin, of course, is the first person of color to be secretary of defense. And of course, Kamala Harris is our first female vice president. What do you think will be the impact of a more diverse, very senior national security leadership structure? I think the impact is going to be significant, but a lot of it will depend upon how brave all those leaders are in breaking traditional codes, breaking the mold that has been there for 20 and 30 years and making sure that their senior managers understand if they don't carry out the president's diverse mandate of making sure the workforce is representative of America, nothing is going to happen. They have to have they have to have the will to do it. I just wrote an article about the caste system in the national security space, and it's across government. It's just not national security. But there are gatekeepers. You're going to have certain gatekeepers that you won't know their intentions. But I work with many managers who speak a good game, but they don't carry, they don't walk the talk. They talk a good game, but they don't walk that talk. So I think all those leaders you mentioned, they have to have the will, they have to have the right person in place to break uh, the eggs on occasion and accountability. Accountability with measures and metrics is key. So when Michelle Flournoy was not selected by President Biden as Secretary of Defense, it was a little bit of a kerfuffle in the national security community. A lot of people were expecting her to be the nominee. Do you see a future when a our first female Secretary of Defense, is that imminent or is that something we're going to have to wait a little longer for? I think Michelle was a perfect person. I've known her for some time. Uh, she She would have been a perfect Secretary of Defense. I think when the president selected the current secretary of defense, I think he'd had a relationship with that person a while back. 
And I think the president looked at that relationship and how well he got along with Mr. Austin and along with his dealings with him, I think he selected him. I think he's a great choice as well. Uh, but I do think there is a place for women, for a woman in high leadership positions in the Department of Defense. And Michelle would have made a perfect person uh, to fill that position. And I'm still rooting for her in <laughs> some capacity. Trust me, a lot of us. I'm still rooting for her. So you're working right now with Howard University on these issues and, and related items. What's, what's your assessment of the pipeline of talent headed into government at, at the entry level? And what are the key choke points that individuals are likely to encounter as they move along? I think the talent that's coming in is great talent. I know at Howard that I'm working on two research projects where I have students working with I'm the um, program manager for NSA and NGA on these data science research projects. These kids are great. They're bright. They're, they're brilliant. The choke point is security clearance. Security clearance is a choke point because many times as they go through that process and let's say they have something on that security clearance that might draw some attention Rather than following up, we throw that application to the side. It could be something so minor. So you need diverse uh, polygraphers. You need diverse people that's looking at those applications and understanding the perspective from when they come, when, when students come from diverse institutions, they bring a certain amount of, of that institution with them that might not be familiar with someone who's lose the application, who's going to Harvard or who's going to Duke. So having that diverse perspective of people that analyze those applications also makes a difference. The choke points is not just the security clearance. Let's say they get through the security clearance and they get inside of the community. There's an orientation period for many people in industry. My daughter went to IBM after she graduated with a 387 in mathematical science and engineering. IBM sent her through a six-month orientation before they put her on the floor. When you get hired into government, there is, in many instances, there is no career ladder. There is no initial assignment of mentors that's going to see you through to a certain level. There are... Uh, roadblocks for keeping people down at a certain level if you don't give them the right exposures and opportunities to advance, to to hone the, those skills and get new experiences. So the government has a lot to do with their mid-level management in teaching their mid-level, in training their mid-level management, a systematic process of bringing new talent in because let's say you get a new talent in, you get students that come in from all these universities. And because that white kid knows somebody, that white kid begin to rise much faster than that minority of that woman. When new recruits see that, even though you spent all this time working with them and bringing them in and acculturating them to your environment, they're going to walk out the door. They're going to leave. So the cycle starts over and over again. I can give you examples with people that 
I won't name agencies, but across the community, many Hispanics and African-American talent, they are there one, two, three years, and they're not treated well, they walk out the door. So how do we train these mid-level managers who are also project managers and human resource managers to care and feed for this new generation of talent when they have multiple things on their plates? So you can't fault the managers completely, but they have to really be human capital infused. Let me give you an example. We recruit people. When we recruit them, we assume, many managers assume this is HR's responsibility to get them to a certain level. No, it's not. It's that core mission manager where they are assigned, they need to take on responsibility in that core mission area to develop those new, that new talent that comes in assign them mentors, giving them stretch assignments, taking them to meetings with you, putting them on red teams early. All those things make a difference to prepare that person for the next step as a team lead and as a, as a, as a, as a project manager. Because if they never get those experience, they won't be in that competitive pipeline to move up to supervisor or to management or to leadership. Dr. Gant, what's the what's the mood at at Howard and perhaps other historically black colleges and universities right now about opportunities in the national security sector? Is it seen as a place where young people of color can go and be successful or is it uh, have some other challenges to deal with, at least among among students before they're getting into the, the first steps of their career? In many instances, and I'm going to draw from my director of the Centers of Academic Excellence, where I had 30 schools, majority uh, large white institutions and eight HBCUs. And we were, my school's university was from all over the country. Many of the students, when we went out to give orientations and briefings and just discuss, have, have discussions, they didn't even know there was an ODNI. People, many HBCUs, and majority institutions don't know there is an intelligence community. They know there's a CIA, they know there's an NGA, but as a confederated co- collaborative community, they don't understand that. The Centers of Academic Excellence was beginning to break down those walls, especially among those institutions. The good thing about the Centers of Academic Excellence is that each of those universities had to do outreach in their communities with high schools and junior high schools. So we could infiltrate those kids early on to come into these universities to learn about national security. From what I gather, that component has been cut out of the Centers of Academic Excellence. But the issue is the the national security community, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, they just are not known in a holistic way at HBCUs. And I, and, and I will say in a lot of majority institutions as well. So let's zoom out really big picture. And w- what are your thoughts about how the lack of diversity in our national security workforce has impacted the U.S. on the, on the world stage? Have we seen in as our government attempts to execute the best foreign policy and national security possible, 
uh, that that we've had a negative impact from our lack of diversity in the workforce? You know, I think we produce excellent national security products. I think they could be made better, making sure that there are uh, perspectives from women and minorities with the right expertise to provide that input. Let me give you an example. I used to go to the Hill to brief the Centers of Academic Excellence to talk about diversity. And talking about those things, many of the Congress people will say to me, well, you're the first black person who has ever come up to brief us. Well, there's something wrong with that picture. Lenora Gant was the first and only one. So that's what I'm saying about the leadership across national security and the intelligence community. Having the will to make these changes, changes with, tradi- with the traditional managers who have fought these, tra- these changes in a very subliminal way, they know what they're doing, but they're ho- they hold these positions for, again, people that look like them, people who's grown up with them, people that socialize with them, people that's, under, as we call it in the, um, in, 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 in the African-American community, there's an underground network. And that underground network, you can't always visualize. It's so unwritten. As soon as we get the rules written on a sheet of paper or a policy, if one of those senior managers want to break those rules, like in uh, the career service sector, they break those rules. And nobody holds those people accountable. That's back to that accountability piece. So I think our national security organizations produce excellent products, excellent estimates. Could it be made better? Of course they can, with a variety of perspectives, not just with people of color, but with bringing in different experts from different academic institutions. If you look at the national intelligence estimates, and one just came out. In fact, I was just looking at the one for 2040. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's on the web. Uh, I've gone through that. And I know that they ask academic experts to come in and work with them. I often wonder how many HBCU experts are, at, are asked to come in to provide that same perspective. I don't know that answer, but I can tell you my guess is probably limited. Expertise from HBCUs. So I think that um, on the world stage, we can all do better. We can all do better to make sure that people that represent this country in any organization is a reflection of its populace. Dr. Gant, we're going to give the last question to our, uh, our producer, Grant Haver. Grant, go ahead. So, Dr. Gant, I I really appreciate you telling us about all the different ways that the government and policymakers can maybe change the way they think about these issues, especially that sort of mid-range leader of color that we need in the national security space. Um, One of the areas that I think is particularly important is that this isn't just a, a policy issue that we should be you know, rallying and lobbying the government to change, but it's a, a personal issue for each of us who work in national security. So what is it that you know, Les and I and all of our listeners can do in this space to make the national security community more enticing of people to, of color to enter, as well as more accommodating of them so that they stay? I have several thoughts around that. Uh, One includes individually 
if they're in key positions, nothing stops them from having a relationship with these HBCUs. Nothing stops them. All they got at Howard, all they have to do is contact me. And they tell me they're disciplined, they're subject area, I can put them in contact. But remember, I'm an intelligence community weenie. I have been in that community for a long time. Every school won't have one of me. And that's what my Centers of Academic Excellence did when I had it. I had people going out all over the country in those 30 universities making that contact. And my hat's off to CIA because CIA assigned one or two of their subject matter experts to every one of my schools. So you think about 60, 30, 60 subject matter experts going out to these institutions, making relationships with the professor, not just with the presidents, because the presidents don't do the hard work. It's those professors in that classroom opening their classes up for you to come in and do discussions with them about problem sets you're facing, giving them hard problems to solve, coming up with research ideas for those students in the classrooms. Uh, anybody works in the government, especially in national security space, if you want to make a difference, reach out to HBCUs or connect with people in your agencies who graduated from HBCUs to make contact for you at these institutions. That's one way to do that. Another thing that we could do, we could host an HBCU day at each of these uh, each of these agencies. Why not? And I'm not talking. And I'm not talking about bringing in presidents because they really don't do the hard work. I'm talking about talking about bringing in your subject matter your your subject matter disciplines professors coming up with problem sets that they could work on assigned to students during the academic year. Inviting those students into your institutions to have roundtable discussions. CIA used to do a lot of that. And when I had my Centers of Academic Excellence, they invited all of my Centers of Academic Excellence to come to CIA. So they would pick one or two uh, students from each of those schools to come and do a visit or even showcase some of their research that they had done. In fact, Cal State University, which is highly Hispanic, uh, they work with the publication, the unclassed publication for the NIC. And they wrote an article about some of their research, getting them involved early on and showing them the value that they can bring, I think is so critical. So those are some of the things I think individually as a manager with power can do to make a difference. One of the things we're doing now with NSA, since I'm at Howard and NGA, we had in October, we had a hiring and information forum where we had about 60 students on talking about the national security space. Uh, so we have people on from subject matter experts from NSA and NGA because they have the CRADA. You've heard of the CRADA. They have a CRADA with Howard and with uh, NGA. So I manage both those CRADAs. This coming Friday, we're having a, sympo a transdisciplinary symposium. And what we're doing in that symposium on Friday, we're showcasing professors and students in atmospheric science, working together, biology, engineering, sociology, and psychology. These students are working on data science projects at NSA and NGA at no cost. And that's because the crater doesn't demand money but it gives the students experience. So this coming Friday, we're gonna have 
about eight students talking about their research along with their professors. And if I, you, you're welcome to come, I will send you the invitation today. It's open. You could see some of this really in play. How often do you see professors and students talking about their research from HBCUs? Not many, but because I am there and I have the Centers of Academic Excellence, I know what works and I know what, what we can do to market to NGA and NSA. And when they found out I was there, they said, Dr. Gang, can you help us? I'm all game for heaven. That's why I'm there. This subject is a labor of love for me because I know that we can do better. And I'm willing to help any agency do better. Dr. Gant, this has been terrific. Thanks a lot uh, for spending time with the podcast this week. You're more than welcome. You've made me think about things I have forgotten. And there, I'm sure there's so much more that I can share with you that if I had time to think about it on the spot, I, I know it. So maybe we'll come back to this topic at another time. But again, this is really a labor of love for me. And being at an HBCU is really exciting in a way because I know what I can give. I know it's important to make these students believe if I can do it, you can do it too. So I'm just one example, but we need more of the people from the intelligence community who make decisions, who might not look like me to come out and talk about and make sure they walk the talk if they get these students inside of their four walls. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. I'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm-hmm.